a book that I've used several times over the last several years is a book uh, that is uh, entitled The uh, Drama of Ephesians, Participating in the Triumph of God by a man named Alan Gomes. Not everything in the book is necessarily recommended. Don't take a reference to a book as it's uh, gospel and everything in it is just perfectly true. But it's been a very encouraging for, book for me to read. I came across it, I don't know, six or seven years ago maybe, and it's always been a great encouragement. I want to look back at it. I looked back at it this week, and, and he touches on the text that we want to look at today as well as the entirety of the book of Ephesians. And he makes this comment about the text that we just read. He said, Ephesians 3.14 through chapter 4, verse 16, functions as a hinge point of the letter. In the first half of the letter, Paul narrates the basic contours of God's victorious story. God has defeated the rebellious powers and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and has installed Jesus as cosmic Lord. God has created the church, the new creation people of God, and the church now stands as the monument to God's triumph. In the second half of the letter, Paul moves to instruct his readers how to embody this reality. Exhortations fill the second half of Ephesians as Paul draws out how the church performs its role in the drama of redemption. The present passage functions as a hinge in that it is comprised of elements from both halves of the letter. Paul aims to move to exhortation, but he is still filling out this description of the church and its role in the drama. He goes on and says, as Ephesians 3 begins, Paul intended to report to his readers how he has been praying for them based on God's victorious activity among them. As was discussed in the preceding chapter, he interrupts himself in Ephesians 3, 2, and we'll look at this text in just a moment, but then completes his prayer report in Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. Paul is praying for God to work powerfully among his readers so that they truly become communities that signify God's supremacy. Or what I might say is that he is praying for them that they might truly become a place in which the fullness of his glory is put on display. I thought today perhaps we could just preach on the word therefore in chapter 4, verse 1. But I'm not even going to get that far because we're simply going to give somewhat today an introduction to the whole of this section. And if I stay erect for the next 30 or 45, 50, whatever minutes, we're going to be doing good. If I happen to slump over, I'm not dead. I'm just sleeping. That's all that's happening. Don't be afraid. Well, it is a hinge. I thought that maybe we could entitle today's sermon just Turning Points. But I thought, no, there's an old radio show called Turning Points, and I didn't want to be connected with that necessarily. But we are at a turning point in the book of Ephesians. Paul does this often in his letters in Colossians and also in the book of Romans and Thessalonians. There's always a, a hinge point where we turn from the, the doctrinal to the practical or orthodoxy to orthopraxy, and we're moving from the uh, indicatives of the gospel to the imperatives. In fact, in chapters 1 to 3, I believe there's only one imperative, and it's not really directed uh, to anything that, you know, live this way so much. 
It's just a bunch of indicatives laying things out. But then chapter 4, to the very end of the book, it's like a flood, an increasing flood of imperatives over and over and over again. In the opening chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul has laid out a fundamental unity of the church that has been created by the purpose and the execution of a plan by God of creating the church. If you just go back in Ephesians chapter 1, and let's just kind of look through some texts here today. In Ephesians chapter 1, you're probably very familiar with the passage in verses 3 through 14, which speaks about the elective purpose of God in choosing us in Christ from before the foundation of the world, the work of the Son in coming and offering himself for our redemption, or the work of the Holy Spirit in coming and being given to us as that Erebon, that guarantee of our future glory. Some have said not to separate the Father and the Son and the Spirit in their work of redemption, but certainly Paul is giving emphasis here to the Father in a particular role of electing, and he's giving emphasis to the Son in redeeming. He's giving emphasis to the Spirit in guaranteeing or sealing us for the day of redemption. Though we know God is one and he works as one, and the Father and Son and the Spirit all do these things as one being. They all elect, they all redeem, they all seal and secure us. Some have said, though, that in this particular idea, the father thought, the son bought, and the spirit placed this reality into our lives. He says here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Skipping down in verse 7, it says, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And then down to verse 13, In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit. And you might recall that each one of those sections in these opening verses, emphasizing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one of them ends or culminates with a glorious statement of praise to God. Notice verse 6. Why does he elect us? Why does he do all this? Why does he predestine us to adoption? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And that beloved is the Lord Jesus, which now opens him up to the new section of speaking about Christ's work. But then at the close of verses 7 to 11, why is it that Jesus has done this great work of redeeming us to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory? And then in verses 13 and 14, the work of the Holy Spirit in sealing us, being given to us as a pledge. Why? It's all to the praise of his glory. In fact, why does God do everything that he does. You ever find yourself asking questions like that? Why did God do this? Why did God do it like this? All right? If I were God, that's always a bad way to start a sentence, by the way, All right, because you're not. But if you were God, you would have done it completely different. Why? Because you're not God. But God did it the way he did it, and then you ask that question, why? Comfort your heart with the answer, he did it this way for his 
glory. He does all things for his glory. Specifically, though, here, it is not his glory in creation that is being emphasized in the book of Ephesians, but his glory in recreation, his glory in creating this church. I want you to notice a couple of texts. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is described in this way as the fullness of him, the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. In other words, the fullness of Christ is going to be put on display as the church embodies the fullness of Christ for all to see. Notice chapter 2 in... Now we'll skip chapter 2. There's a lot there in chapter 2. Um, well, no, let's come to chapter 2 and let's look, in, um, let's look in verse 15. What's he doing with the church? In the church... He is taking Jew and Gentile and putting them together, and he is creating a new humanity. He's creating a new man. Notice what he says in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, this is the Gentile, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one. Into one what? Into one new man or a new humanity. There, there are echoes here of the original creation, the creation of Adam. Now, we know Christ is the what? Christ is the second Adam. But remember, the church is to be the fullness of the second Adam. And the only way it can be this is if we are created into a new humanity, all coming together to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, moving on in chapter 2, he leaves the, the, the man image, and he, he gets a building image, and he starts talking about the household of God. Notice verse, uh, verse 19. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Now, this is the same imagery that's picked up in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, when it talks about the church being the household of God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Ryan and I didn't have much time this week. I was kind of out of pocket, but I was, I was really encouraged in Sunday school that there was so much overlap. You could have just taught a second Sunday school hour, and I could have sat down, I'm sorry, and could have kept doing that, and I could have napped right over here. But it was so good. It was so helpful because this imagery of, of a building, what's he doing with the church? He's building himself a what? A place to live. Not in the physical sense, you get it, but he's building himself a place in which he can display his glory, his fullness through the church. Notice in verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What did Jesus say 
in John 14 through 16 when he said, I'm going to go away. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to come, and he'll dwell within you, and I and the Father, in the coming of the Spirit, I and the Father are going to come and make our what? Our abode with you. Later on tonight, you're going to go home to your abode. You never called it that, did you? Your abode. You did? Okay, all right, well, I don't usually use that kind of verbiage, but it's a place you live. It's a place God lives. It's a place he dwells. Paul tells the Corinthians that their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, at one point in time in 1 Corinthians, he emphasizes your body, your individual body, your physical body is a place where God comes and dwells. You belong to God, therefore honor God with your body. But he also tells the Corinthians, you, plural, you are the body of Christ. This is where he dwells. Well, the same imagery is carried in to chapter 3, where Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And in the New American Standard, you might notice at that point, there's a hyphen. Is that in yours? I don't know what translations you have, but it's a hyphen. And what that basically means is, Paul is now going to go off book, all right? And he's going to come back in verse 14. I want you to notice the connection between verse 1 and verse 14. For this reason, it's an interesting little phrase that Paul uses. It's, it's, I think, fairly unique to hear. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, and then verse 14, what does it say? For this reason, it's the same phrase again. For this reason, I, Paul, uh, the prisoner of the Lord, Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and now he's going to go off from verse 2 all the way through verse 12, and he's going to talk about his work among the Gentiles. So when he mentions, it's, it's just like, I understand this, because preachers have an amazing way of never finishing sentences, and we get off on a million bunny trails, and you just start hopping down this trail over here, having a great time, and everybody's like, where is he going? Has he lost his mind? Does he need to be in a home, a little room with little walls? Has he forgotten that we're even here? No, he's just off there having fun. He's just He's just dancing down the trail, hopping down the trail, having a, a moment, all right? And he'll come back, maybe here in a few minutes. Paul does it all the time, all right? He's, he's saying something, and then he's like, oh, that reminds me. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Oh, for the sake of you Gentiles. Yeah, let me talk about that for a while, for the sake of you Gentiles, and he explains some about his ministry as being this apostle to the Gentiles, having the mystery of Christ, and, and, and about the Gentiles coming in. And then he comes back, and he says in verse 13, Therefore I ask you, don't lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they're for your glory. All these things I'm doing as an apostle to the Gentiles, I'm working them all. They're all where you work providentially for your what? For your glory. Right? And that's not a glory that's unrelated from the idea that we've already seen of the church being the fullness of Christ, the place where Christ is glorified and magnified to the world. Now, verse 14, he comes back, for this reason, now I'm going to come back and do what I was going to do. I'm going to pray for you. And he bows his knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit and this all culminates, notice, notice the, the purpose phrases. It's all going to culminate at the end of verse 19. 
For this reason, I bow my knees, verse 16, that he would grant to you. It's kind of a purpose clause, why I'm praying for you. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you may be able, verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints and I want you to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And finally, he comes to it in verse 19. This is his reason. Why is he praying for them? That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You see that kind of, he's, he's just, he's, these are all reasons he's praying, but they're like escalating reasons. They're, they're reasons that are building. The reasons are getting grander and greater and more amazing. You ever find yourself when you're praying for someone? Oh, dear Lord, please be with Aunt Agnes. She stubbed her toe this week. Help her to feel better. Uh, help her toe to get better fast. Amen. And, and you're or like, you don't know what to pray for Aunt Agnes, all right? Pray this for Aunt Agnes. You, you, you hear about a church, and you hear they're having trouble. Oh, God, help them as they're dealing with a couple of difficult leaders, or they're dealing with a couple of uh, difficult visitors, whatever, all right? And you just say things in general, like, help them. Help them what? Help them deal with these people. What is that... Scripture is a wonderful thing to use to help inform and shape the way you pray for someone. This is an inspired text that the Apostle Paul has been guided by the Holy Spirit to pray for God's people in the church in Ephesus, and by extension, all the churches. Have your prayers shaped and formed by the word of God. And when he comes to this point in verse 19, I want you to be filled up to all the fullness of God. And sometimes you're like, what does that mean? Your head is like just about to explode. Trying to ex well, if I could explain to you everything that meant, that would mean I could grasp the fullness of God. You should be thankful I can't explain everything about what that means. That means to go far beyond just Aunt Agnes's toe. I want Agnes, I want my aunt who loves the Lord Jesus to grow in such a way in the grace and knowledge of Christ that she herself and the brothers and sisters in the local body that she is with might grow to the point that they manifest for the, for the, for the world to see, all creation to see, the glory and the greatness and the wonder of God. Just like I want Agnes to get beyond her toe, I need to get beyond her toe in praying for her. I don't mean to harp on Aunt Agnes. If anybody has one, that's not the problem. But you see the point? We're trying to say our, our prayers are so often very mundane and small and little. And, and we, we want those that we pray for to grow. Hear this. If you want the people that you pray for to grow, then your prayers need to grow because God is answering your what? Your prayers. See, I need to ask for more. What, is, what does James say? You don't have because you what? You don't ask. I know you're thinking, oh, he sounds so Pentecostal. Well, I'm not Pentecostal, all right? But sometimes I think they have one over on us when they pray much grander things than just help her toe. You're thinking, I watched some stuff this past week. Some of these toes were growing in a pentecost. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about growing toes. We need to get beyond toes, all right? 
Now, when Paul gets to this point in the letter, remember he's in the hinge, he's in this turning point, okay? And, and he, he bursts forth like he often does in just expostulation and praise. Paul's like, I don't know what else to do. I'm just going to praise God, all right? And so he kind of, kind of bursts into something. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice that God is able to do more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think according to, in proportion to, the power that he has placed within us. We, as the household of God, the power that he has placed within us is no impersonal force. It is the very presence of God himself. It is the Holy Spirit that has taken up residence in the church. And Paul says, when I pray for you, I'm praying that God might answer my prayers in proportion to the power that you have available to you as God's people. And the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within the church is greater than anything you could ever imagine. The moment you think that God is able to do something grand, he's able to do something grander. And then you can stop and think about what the grander thing is he can do, and I can guarantee you he's able to do something grander than that. You know, we got to pray like that. We don't pray like that. I don't pray like that. We need to be much more bold and much more grand in the things that we ask of God. Therefore, in light of that, in light of the fact that, that God is going to be glorified in the church, as he is glorified in Jesus Christ, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, we're going to come back to this verse later on, but let me just stop and remind you that the things that we've been talking about, about back in chapter 1, about the church being his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all, Christ fills all, the church is to be that place that arena in which the glory of Christ is put on display. And it's not just in this world. I didn't mention this earlier, but look back in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 8, let's start there. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable, um, that's a, the unfathomable riches of, of Christ. My tongue worked much better on Friday morning. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for which, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. This is the mystery that's been hidden in God about the Gentiles coming to join the Jews and them being placed together in this new humanity, this new temple through which Christ can display his glory for all to see. This, has been, this is like a hidden mystery. It's, it's not like a mystery like, you know, Agatha Christie, who done it, something like that. It's not like a mystery like you've got to solve it like a problem. It's a mystery that depends upon God to disclose it for you to know it. It requires revelation for God to, to, to disclose it to us. So that, what is this? So that the reason, the reason it's been hidden, I have this mission by God to reveal and disclose this mystery about the Gentiles coming together with the Jews, with the new humanity, the new temple, 
so that, verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, hold on, might now be made known through the church, it's the same thing that was being said back in chapter 1 in verse 23. It's going to be made known through the church. Same thing being said over here in chapter 3, verse 19, and chapter 3, verse 21. Through the church to, are you ready? To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. He wants the angels in heaven who long to look into things of salvation. He wants the demons in hell. He wants all of creation to know his glory and the place where he is going to display that glory is through the church. This was in accordance, verse 11, with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. That, that is what we're called to. We are called to be the place through which or in which or through whom, my grammar's so bad, you get the point. We're called to be that vehicle through which Christ displays his weight, his glory, his beauty for all of creation to see. Now, back to chapter 4, verse 1. You and I are called... Oh, I have notes here. I forgot them. You, you and I are called to walk in a manner that is worthy of or proportionate to that calling. That's called, as they say in the country, setting the hay high. We are called to walk together in such a way that it's a manner worthy of that high, glorious, lofty calling. Again, I'm just trying to introduce this we're going to come back and dig more into these verses. But our walk together as a body, and walk means, in short, our manner of life, the way we live, the way we live together. We're not necessarily talking simply your individual Christian life. We're not talking about your family. We're talking about and we're not talking about the universal church here, per se. Remember, it's a letter to a local church. This local church, Ephesus, is going to have to embody this calling in their walk, and they're going to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. So speaking to you today, primarily those who are here from two different churches, and if you are here from another church, what a blessing. We're so thankful. But as we consider merging our churches together... We, corporately, are going to have to walk in a manner that is consistent with that high and lofty calling. That's what we're trying to embody as a church. Now, let's hear again verses 
1 through 16. With that in mind, what is it that Paul expects the church to do? How is it that Paul expects the church to do that? How can we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, he's going to line out a few things for us here in these 16 verses, two in particular, and I'll come back and mention them in a moment. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I beseech you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It is in those six verses that the first thing that we're supposed to do is found. We are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I see that as the key idea in these six verses. God has created a unity in the church. God has formed us to be the body that he will inhabit. There is an objective reality to the church that is not going to be unsettled or undone by the way you and I live our lives. If you go back to chapter 2, In verse 20, it says that this church, this household of God, has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. However, verse 21 says, in whom the whole building being fitted together is doing what? It's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. When you move from verse 20 to verse 21, verse 20 sounds very settled. Verse 21 sounds like things are still moving. Verse 20, we've been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's a done deal. Nobody's going to lay a new foundation for the church. Um, Nobody's going to lay a new cornerstone. It's interesting you pulled up 1 Corinthians 3 today. No man can lay what? No man can lay another foundation. No man can lay another cornerstone. But, verse 21, in whom, by whom, through whom, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You and I will never unseat the foundation of the church. That's just not going to happen. But then there's the building. Then there's the the maintaining of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is something he says we must be diligent to do. He places the onus, he places the responsibility for maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace upon the church. We'll come back to that. Let's go on. Verses 7 to 16. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And now a parenthetical statement between verses 9 and 10. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill 
all things. There's our phrase again. This is speaking about the incarnation or the humiliation and the resurrection or the exaltation of Christ. And it's a parenthetical statement that's kind of expounding upon the text that was mentioned in verse 8, which is a quotation from Psalm 68. Lord willing, we'll have here in a few weeks time to go back and look at Psalm 68. It's just an incredible, incredible song about the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice Christ is exalted on high. Why? Verse 10, that he might fill all things. And Christ does. Christ fills all things. And the program he's engaged in right now is the building and the maturing and the strengthening of the church. The church might be the place through which he might display that very fullness. So he gives in verse 7, he gives gifts of grace to the church. And in verse 11, he gets very specific about what those gifts are. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by by whatever joint supplies, according to its proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I mentioned in verses 1 to 6, I see the central idea as being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In this section, I see the central idea as the attaining of the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's there in verse 13. That's what we're shooting for. That's what we're aiming for. We want to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Let me say it this way. In our walk together, our walk with one another, it's important that you underline that phrase in your Bible, or at least in your mind. It's there in verse 2, showing tolerance for one another. In our walking with one another and maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, We grow up into Christ our head, striving to attain to the unity of the faith and are maturing into our head. And later in the book of Ephesians, we're not going to cover the remaining sections of Ephesians, but in the rest of Ephesians where he gets into all these exhortations, there is an admonition over and over for the church to increase or to grow in her moral virtue, her Christ-likeness before the world, in their marriages, in their family, with their children and as parents. Sometimes that section is referred to as like household codes. It's in Ephesians, and it's also in the book of Colossians. We need to be growing in our virtue, in our work, in our labors, pursuing holiness and standing firm against the devil and all of his temptations. But again, that's beyond Ephesians chapter 4 here in verses 1 to 16. But if I was giving you somewhat of an outline for this section, I might call it something like this. And by the way, outlines are always subject to change. But 
I might say that in the calling of the church, we are called to unity of the Spirit. We are called to a unity of the Spirit in verses 1 to 3. And there is then provided in verses 4 to 6 a theological ground for our unity, and that is found in verses 4 to 5. And that theological ground for our unity is the work of God himself of whom we make a common confession. There are seven things that are mentioned in verses 4 to 6 that serve as kind of a, a, a launching pad for Paul to stand on these realities. And having these realities underneath him, he exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that's verses 1 to 6. There's this call to unity of the Spirit, and it's theologically grounded in the work of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then in verses 7 to 16, there is a call to unity of the faith, and that is found there in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and it goes on giving more descriptions about what it means to look mature and to grow. This is spiritually provided for by the gifts of Christ and the common provision or possession of the church of these gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It's through their labors in the word and doctrine that the church will grow into the unity of the faith. And let me just say two things by way of application. I have no idea what time it is. There is no clock in here. I just noticed that. But let me just say two things, and we'll try to be done, all right? This call to be diligent, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, this is a challenge, this is a command, this is a direction, hear this, that is given to every one in the church. This is not just a pastor job. It's not just a deacon job. It's not just a husband job or a wife job or kids that are professing members of Christ and members of the church. It is not just your parents' job to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice that it says you are to be diligent Notice that it says, you are to do this with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. In the context of this passage, there's an emphasis on body life. Sometimes we refer to it as the one another's of the Bible. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Bear one another's burdens admonish one another, reprove one another. And there's like a giant list of these, and we'll probably try to come back and look at some of them in the coming weeks. But listen, here's my point. You can't fulfill, are you listening? Please listen. You can't fulfill the one another's of the Bible without another. Yeah, I said it the way I wanted to. I want to know if you're hearing that. You can't fulfill the one another's of the body without another. You can't fulfill it unless you're with what? Another. Tell me how you can admonish one another without being with another. 
You can't. It takes two, <laughs> at least. And we have many more than two. It takes a group. It takes us all. This is going to require work, effort, sacrifice, love. Lord willing, if we survive two more months, if we survive a month of me preaching, Ryan did so well, he held it all together. But if we make it through me and then make it through Ryan again and I get to come back, Lord willing, Philippians chapter two, what does it say? Each of you should consider, consider the other as what? More important than yourself. You should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. How many times, parents, have you had this conversation with your children? Oh, some of you are laughing. Some of you kids are thinking, did my mommy talk to him before the service today because we just had this conversation this morning? No, your mommy didn't, but I have seven kids. And I know I'm pretty big, but I used to be a kid. And my mom... You know, she can't remember everything all the time necessarily, but I don't remember everything all the time. She thinks it's, you know, she's, she's called, mom and dad have called up here sometimers, and I think I have it, all right? We forget things all the time. But she remembers that there were times, oh, I was such a pest to my sister. I was such a pest, bless her heart. And um, I was just, oh, I was that irritating little brother. No wonder she couldn't stand me. <laughs> I was just like, mm, I was always thinking about me. Or I was thinking about her when I wanted to get her in trouble, you know, that kind of a thing. It's in your best interest that I tell on you, those kinds of things. And I had such delight in doing it. Beloved, for this to happen in the life of a church, it takes presence, it takes being together, it takes being together for a long time. Oh, I can stand those church people for a while. But when they really start to bother me, I, I just go home. I just go somewhere else. It's a wonderful text in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10. It, it's the passage that talks about not forsaking the assembly. Why? Because we need to be here. But it's great. Look, look, look at it in Hebrews chapter 10. I know I said two things. Well, I meant two things. This is still part of number one. Hebrews 10, verse 25 it says, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But don't forget verse 24. And let us consider, and here's another one another. This is great. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You know what the word stimulate means there? It means to irritate. Now, not like you're just trying to be a you know, rude person. But if you take your hands and you rub them together, what do you start to feel? You feel heat. Yeah, the kids are doing this with me. That's good. All right? And it's warm. Why? Because there's friction and, and it's irritating and it's, it's, the heat is increasing. Brothers and sisters, that's the way church life is supposed to be. Because in your irritation of one another, in your bumping and elbows and rubbing shoulders and, and, and ooh, it's just so tight in here. I need more space, all right? I need these people to move away from me a little bit. No, we need to be what? Together. 
because that will encourage us by being diligent together, by being humble together, by being gracious together. It will grow us in love and good deeds. And listen, as we grow in love and as we display good deeds, we are putting the fullness of Christ on display for the world. We're saying, I love Christ. I want to be holy. Christ is beautiful. I want everyone to see him. What happens when churches split? What happens when people leave? What happens when there's grumbling and complaining? Is there a light that shines so bright before men that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven? No, it's like a flickering four-watt light bulb that nobody gets lit at all. Brothers and sisters, it is going to take much work to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But secondly, we are going to have to grow. We're going to have to grow up into our head who is Christ. We're going to grow up into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. This is, this is, this is going to mean that as a church... We're going to have to go to school. We're going to have to learn. We're going to have to sit under the preached word of God. We're going to have to get taught. We're going to have to grow in the truth. What, is, what does Peter say? Grow in the what? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to, like, crush us in the last moment and, like, you know, kill it all on my first Sunday, and I don't even make it the second Sunday. But this is going to mean that you're going to have to come to church, read your Bible, bring your Bible, listen to the sermons, go home, meditate upon the sermons, fathers watch over your households, lead them in family worship, teach them. It was so fun today, we had Michael with us in the car, and we were, we were just asking, he was asking questions, and, and uh, I mean, Michael is, uh, well, a couple years now, I guess, brother, as a believer, and, you know, he's, he's just, Michael's just so, he's just got that new believer glow. It just never leaves him. He just wants to grow and he wants to learn. We're having all these discussions in the car. And I forget how you said it or something like, but it was like, and we're just rolling down the road having theological conversations in the Montgomery car or whatever. And it wasn't that he was getting great answers, I'm sure, but it was just so fun to talk about those kind of things. What, is, what, is, what, is, what does Deuteronomy tell the parents when you get up, when you walk along the way, when you go to bed? You talk about the things of God. Brothers and sisters, how long have you been in church? Five years? Ten years? Thirty years? Forty years? What if everybody in the church knew what you knew about the Bible? How long would we make it? You might sit there and think, well, knowing about the Bible, that's for pastors, that's for preachers, that's for deacons, that's, that's for my wife. Oh, brothers, we must be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and we must all strive to attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. May the holiness of the body and the peace of the body and the joy of the body be so precious to you that you want to be diligent to maintain it every time you can. And may the knowledge of Christ, knowing your Savior through his word, taught in his church, may that be such a precious thing to you that you will do whatever you can do to get to 
the Word of God. Maybe you've seen it. I don't know if you have or not. And I don't even know what the, what the people group is. It's a tribe in some far-off land. It's not, uh, it's not Fort Worth. And it's a video online. You can probably find it. New, a little tribe in the middle of... Just Google, little tribe gets the Bible for the first time, and you'll see it. Some of you have seen it. They've, they've, they've heard of Christ. Many of them know Christ, but they have never had a copy of the Word of God in their language. And their elders have been teaching them the Bible, and they've been helping various groups translate the text of Scripture and there's this scene in the video where there are probably like three, four hundred of them just scattered along the runway. Have you seen this before? It's scattered along, and they're there in their tribal dresses, you know, and they're bouncing around, and they're all tribal, you know, whatever that is. And they're, they're, it's like amazing just to see it. And the plane comes in, and the plane lands. And it lands, and there are men on the plane that bring out these bundles of the Word of God, And the elder takes the bundles and they're all holding it. And he begins to pray in some language, I do not know. And he just says, thank you. Thank you, O great God, for bringing us the Bible. Oh, and so many times on Sunday, we're scrambling to get out the door. And we can't even find our Bible. Because it's been a week since we saw it before. Brothers and sisters, The church is to be the place through which Christ displays his glory to the world. And in order for that to happen, you and I and every one of us must diligently maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and we must strive to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And in this way, Christ will be put on display before a needy world and before a wicked, fallen, demonic, spiritual reality, and before the angels of heaven, all to the praise and the glory of Christ and to the good of our own souls. I pray he would indeed make it so. Make it so here in this church. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. We thank you. And we do pray, O God, that you would make us a people diligent, striving, zealous for love and for good deeds, outdoing one another and showing honor, ready to, to help our brother and sister at any point in time, being diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and striving to attain to the knowledge of the Son of God and the unity of the faith. Oh God, help us. Help us as we walk together. Help us as we share and use our gifts to do this very thing, to bring about this glorious display of the fullness of Christ through the church to the praise of God and the good of our souls. We thank you, Father, for it in Jesus' name.